Welcome, everyone, to a new episode of the Roscoe's Wetsuit Podcast. I'm coming at you from sunny Boca Raton, Florida. Got a really special guest on the show today, uh, Layla Alami. Uh, Layla's a friend. Uh, she is a clinical psychophysiologist, a psychotherapist, and a board-certified neurotherapist. Uh, she did uh, a lot of schooling. Um, she got a master's of uh, mental health at Nova Southeastern University with a clinical track in neurological disorders. And then she did uh, a biomedical neuroscience graduate uh, a certified specialty, medical neuroscience. I think that's it. Uh, at the University of Florida College of Medicine. So Layla is a really interesting uh, person and I look forward to, you know, happy to have you on the show. Hello. Hello. All right. So to start things off, I wanted to kind of ask you, you know, as far as how and why, you know, you kind of got into this line of work, how uh, what what originally got like sparked your interest in, in neuroscience or neurology, psychology, that sort of stuff? Well, um, the brain obviously is very mysterious uh, in many ways. So when I started getting interested in psychology, um, I couldn't just stop in the psychology major. I basically had to move on and, and learn about the physiology because psychology leads to physiology, physiology leads to psychology. So therefore, I got into it um, with very high interest, which led to a career path. So, um, right. And then I specialized in the brain trauma, which was very interesting because you see different patients that react, that have the same diagnoses, but react differently in many ways. So that strikes up uh, a lot of interest in me. Um, yeah. A little bit of the background where uh, I had, I did pre-med, uh, which led to the which was a foundation to actually do the biomedical neuroscience after my master's degree and that's um because psychology and physiology they're very intertwined so therefore you have in my opinion you have to learn about both of them in order to have a good understanding of what the mind and body uh, connections do yeah no i'm completely with you there i think it was weird because in my undergrad, you know, I did psychology and biology and, and sometimes people didn't really understand like the connection between the two. But I was like, how do you not like how can you understand the brain right. just for, either either just from a psychological perspective, just talking about theories and, you know, or, you know, on the, you know, vice versa, like you can't just understand right. the chemicals or just know. the philosophy of it. There is more yeah. into it. Yeah, yeah. So, so for you, the the psychology came first. Is that that right? Or did uh, so my undergrad in psychology? I was doing psychology and pre med at the same time. Okay. Through my undergrad. Gotcha. Yeah. Sweet. Yeah. Okay. And, so yeah, and then the pre med opened doors for me uh, after my master's when I decided to kind of keep going after my master's and specialize. So that was a strong foundation because of the physical sciences that I studied. Mm -hmm. Do you ever feel like, uh, like it's it's really cool what you've been able to do as far as like actually integrating like you know what you're passionate about with a career? 
You know, mm-hmm. I think a lot of people like, you know, they have hobbies or, you know, like what they're really interested in is not actually what they end up doing for work. Did, right. Was it was it tough for you, like originally, like starting out to be able to figure out how am I going to like integrate this into a career path or did it kind of just um, organically come about? I always had a plan in my head, funny enough, during my graduate studies. I was the only one that actually thought about specializing afterwards. And uh, like you said, people couldn't understand why coming from clinical mental health, why are you, you know, uh, doing other studies with the physical sciences? But in my mind, I think it's important. Uh, definitely, like I said, psychology and physiology, they're very much intertwined and you can't understand one without the other. So, um, yeah, after my clinical mental health, I went on and I specialized and um, it it opens, it it does open doors uh, for me in different ways. Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. And you touched on something earlier that I think is really important as far as like with, you know, with with different patients, you know, with you're saying like the same diagnoses, you know, experiencing different kind of results, right, from right. from different therapies. And that's that's something I feel like maybe is is common with all forms of medicine, but probably particularly with the brain, just because we all right. have such unique, you know, neurochemistry uh, that differs, you know, from one one individual to another. Is that, is that part of like what got you into, like got you kind of interested just because it's not like a one size fits all? Yeah. It's the curiosity too. Yeah. I think that's built in me is that, okay, so this person has a stroke, but then let's find out, you know, it's kind of like, where's the stroke located? So they're going to actually react to it differently psychologically. When you know the anatomy of the, the location of the stroke, you know, some people lose their speech or, uh, you know, broke as aphasia or anarchy's aphasia when it's on the left side. And um, if it's in the frontal lobe, then personality changes could occur. So very, you know, it's, it's a stroke. However, um, knowing the anatomy, hence the physiology of uh, what's going on in there can lead to some answers, psychologically speaking. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like, kind of, I, I view it as kind of like peeling back, you know, layers of the onion or, you know, kind of like figuring out like, you know, because it's like, the, the brain is, you know, like the, what do they call it? Like the, the most complex thing in the universe. Absolutely. You've heard that, right? Yeah. So it's like, you know, there's all of these different, you know, variables at play, like you're talking about, you know, with, with looking at what area of the brain, you know, what, you know, what happened in what area, you know, and what that is actually resulting in can, can completely differ. Yeah. Um, and I think the other thing I think that's really interesting nowadays is all the kind of, um, you know, genetic things that we're learning about, you know, like genetic predispositions to certain things um, or how, I mean, I, I feel like, you know, there's whole, like all like, like say, uh, like pharmacology, you, t- you take mm-hmm. pharmacology and there's starting to be like, uh, basically, you know, they'll be able to see like based off what, you, what your genes are, which drugs are more likely to kind of like. Yeah, I've heard of that. Most. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder Pretty. if we'll. Yeah, it is neat. I, I yeah. wonder if we'll get to a point where, you know, we'll be able to see kind of like maybe maybe with a certain genetic 
you know, identity, whether, whether you'll be kind of more likely to experience X after a stroke. Do you think that's maybe going to be part of future research? I mean, maybe. Uh, medicine is, you got to keep an open mind, especially with medicine, because you don't know what research could come up with. You know, we're coming up with new breakthroughs every single day. So could be, who knows? Yeah. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. All right. Well, I know you're really interested in as far as, uh, you know, kind of love and the brain, you know, kind of going through the the neurochemistry. Can you mm -hmm. kind of break that down as far as, you know, what uh, what love kind of what is happening in the brain when when you say fall in love? Love uh, is a strong feeling, isn't it? <laughs> well, you definitely have the happy neurochemicals going through uh, the brain when you're in love. You have dopamine is one of them, serotonin is another, oxytocin is actually considered the love hormone. So um, as we probably know, you have serotonin that regulates uh, mood, sleep, memory, even sexual pleasure, uh, and then dopamine actually is the brain's reward system. It regulates, it gives us, you know, that reward feeling to, to make us feel good and be motivated and all of those uh, emotions. And oxytocin is considered the love hormone, um, and it's, it's, a, it's very, actually, it's very, it's very much increased in women because Especially when a woman is pregnant, oxytocin allows the mother to be connected to the fetus and as the baby's, you know, the fetus is growing uh, inside her belly and um, that, yeah, oxytocin definitely when the brain doesn't have enough, especially like say, let's say breakups. Um, the, those those <laughs> neurochemicals start to drop, therefore can lead to depression. And um, that's why a lot of people, it's not such a good feeling when you were in love and then suddenly you go through a breakup. A lot of people go through some rough times. You don't yeah. enjoy that? <laughs> not at all. <laughs> so, okay, so let's just walk through the, the actual like progression of things. So say you, you meet someone so from my understanding, it's kind of like dopamine and serotonin are probably like acting first, like where you're, there's kind of like the, you know, the desire, the sort of, you know, going. The motivation you know, to the chase mo the, the lady. Right, you know? right, right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then, and then the serotonin kind of being the, you know, you're, you're, you're feeling good being around that person. I, I think, you know, a lot of people don't think about it, but I think we're really drawn to people like we want to hang around people who bring out positive emotions in us and what they're really what they're really doing I think is is basically triggering those happy neurochemicals there's like getting a lot of dopamine serotonin flowing um, and that kind of attracts us you know whether that's I think romantically or just you know with with friends but then it seems like oxytocin is kind of more of the um, kind of is that sort of like more longer term, sort of like building like a, you know, relationship? 
Right. Well, it, it's saying that it does make you fall in love, and and like you said, it starts with the the chase, and which is the dopamine levels, and then the, the feelings, which is the serotonin, and then oxytocin is more of a strong feeling of being in love. Um, that's why it's important when you go through breakups that you don't just isolate. Also, dopamine. Um, so some people after a breakup start to crave that dopamine, you know, the desire, which that person kind of left with that, with, you know, along with them uh, and just left them alone. So it's important to realize that when people go through breakups, you, uh, there are kind of like few key points that you, you, you're going to need to go through and so, so that you don't fall into depression because that's, Actually, uh, it's a serious case when, uh, and it does happen, you go through depression after a breakup. So one of the key points is don't look at pictures of your significant other when you break up. Don't go through their social media. Don't stalk them. Don't just, you know, look for that uh, internal satisfaction, even though when they're no longer around. Um, Would you prescribe, like, burning burning pictures of them? Is that a good... (laughs) I wouldn't, I wouldn't recommend that. You might burn the house down. <laughs> um, dopamine, because people actually, they start uh, seeking that dopamine craving by simply looking at pictures. So you don't want to satisfy that because that can lead again to a drop in dopamine and leads to depression. Oh, it's kind of like a withdrawal feeling. The second one is disrupt the uh, excessive thinking, the obsessive thoughts about your significant other or your ex. Um, sometimes you, you, if it's a, every, if you were really deeply in love and you go through a breakup, sometimes you do need to go to a psychotherapist and process how are you going to switch your thinking around. And it's true. And um, kind of decrease that obsessive thinking. Um, CBT is really handy in those situations, cognitive behavioral therapy, which switches your your thinking patterns um, to, mo- to move on with life. Uh, another thing is new routines, like build a workout routine because then you get your dopamine levels again, serotonin, endorphins, all of that, uh, kick up, kick back up. Uh, Routine with exercise, yoga, eating healthy, all of that does matter. Um, and, and lastly, I would think to kind of like don't think of only about the good things you had with your ex. Start thinking about the bad things that they did too because that's gonna, that can help with the breakups kind of and, and help you move, move on. Right. Andrew, so as far as like you know, I was thinking because dopamine, you know, is really involved. Like, you know, we get we get the most amount of dopamine when there's like a novelty, right? Where it's like something for the first time. You know, whether that's you that know rush. Do, doing a drug, you know, where where you're getting like the highest high the first time you do it, and then with with drug addicts, you know, they're they're trying to like build back up to get that, you know, that same kind of dopamine hit that they originally got. And but do you see the same thing? Like, do you think it's Maybe that's kind of why, you know, some people kind of, you know, move from like partner to partner because you sort of get that all of those feel good neurochemicals right at at first, but then they kind of wear off, right? Like how, like, 
what, Possibly. what makes... Possibly. I don't think... I, it's def definitely... It's not one answer to all. Because, again, we're all chemically built. And it also depends on how how were your experiences in the past. If, if you tend to go from one person to another to another to get the uh, that adrenaline rush and that dopamine level because of that excitement then it may have to do with the experiences that you've gone through in your past. Uh, that, you know, that the brain got wired that way, so you need to kick up constant dopamine levels moving from one person to another. Mm. Could be a lot of things. Also, uh, maybe you think, like, I feel like oxytocin plays a role as far as, like, we know, I'm sure you're, like, familiar with the, the study with, like, the male prairie voles. Do you know what I'm talking about? Where... Basically, some of them had, um, you know, oxytocin, uh, and that they, in, in some of the prairie voles, they like blocked the oxytocin, and the ones with blocked oxytocin uh, were, were like they weren't monogamous, but the ones who who had sufficient oxytocin basically bonded with with one partner and right. you know stuck with them. So that yeah. you know, I think that's another kind of right. layer to the puzzle. Yeah, that's why uh, I had mentioned about the connection between the baby and the mother. Um, the mother tends to to to, uh, to create a lot more oxytocin during pregnancy because of that need of connection with the with the baby. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's interesting because it's like oxytocin is like very like versatile in the sense where it's like the romantic love, but then also gets sort of transitioned like to the yeah. mother the unconditional the love <laughs> yeah yeah that's interesting um yeah. i feel like there, there's been some research too about like mothers like with with like insufficient oxytocin like who aren't able to like bond right, right. have you seen any of that which research? can lead to postpartum postpartum depression interesting mm. is that so do you think that's more of a oxytocin effect or is that because I've, I've also, like, is it serotonin too, or maybe some of the hormones that are altered with pregnancy? I would, I would, I mean, I don't think there is research that pinpoints exactly what's the level of this versus that, but I would imagine it's a combination of definitely the serotonin as well, mm -hmm. as well as the oxytocin, yeah. Right. Interesting. And what do you, what do you think about, like, the, you know, I feel like it's kind of gotten... Eh, some kind of popularity as far as like people you know like because they can do like oxytocin sprays right like i know there's been like because it's also involved like the other thing we didn't really talk about is just like social connection like oxytocin uh plays a big role and that's one of the things with like autism where you know there's like problems with the mirror neuron system in the brain and yeah. that's somewhat regulated by by oxytocin so i know there's some you know like you know, uh, you know, parents of autistic children who are, you know, trying, you know, those oxytocin. Yeah. What do you What do you think about those sprays? Like, have you seen any research as far as like saying that they work? They don't work. I haven't. No, I haven't seen anything about in regards to the spray and autistic. Um, what about just What about just in general, like the spray in general? Like, do you think like I've heard of an exog exogenous oxytocin works? or is it kind of like we don't really know yet yeah i don't i don't know i haven't tried it myself <laughs> so i'm not sure how how uh, 
how to answer that about perfumes and stuff, but it's possible, possible that it could take an effect. But again, I, I don't think it's going to take an effect on, on everybody, on some maybe. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, I feel like we covered that topic pretty well. Um, <laughs> I, I know you're also, you really specialize and, and have a ton of, you know, wealth of information about, um, you know, how, how sort of like physical trauma affects the brain in the sense of, of strokes, traumatic brain injuries, right? Um, can you talk a little as far as, because um, I feel like, you know, a lot of us kind of, you know, we go about life just kind of thinking, you know, like, oh, you know, we, we are just kind of like who we are. But at the same time, if, if one of those devastating things happens to our brain, it can, it can result in like huge personality shifts, right? Absolutely. Um, go ahead. No, I was just, so just wanting to see, you know, like what, can you talk a little about as far as like what is actually happening maybe on a, on a structural and chemical basis in the brain, say when you, when you have like a stroke? Well, it depends again where the stroke happened physiologically in the brain. It could come, it could result to different things, different dysregulations uh, psychologically and physiologically. So when a stroke happens, um, some definitely the brain kind of reroutes. So say a stroke happens um, in the frontal lobe. So sometimes it takes a person a little bit extra to to think a certain way or you know accomplish certain things certain movements or um or even have memory that's not so quick because the brain has to bypass that part of the brain that's been unfortunately damaged by the stroke so um it's also important to to point out that families, not just the patient, families get um, go through you know some some dilemmas and some some issues because the person is not uh, the per the person that had that was before. So they have to be patient and repeat themselves if they need to because memory may not be there as efficient as it was before or uh, go the extra mile to, to explain certain things a little bit more. Uh, and so the, the family members also have to, to kind of train themselves. How are they going to handle this new situation, unfortunately? Mm -hmm. It doesn't just affect the person only. Right, right, yeah. right. There's like big family and, pro I mean, yeah. I'm assuming, you know, I don't know how many millions of dollars are lost, you know, with healthcare as well as just society. You know, mm -hmm. those people say, you know, they may have a tough, they may not be able to hold down a job or, or you know, right. not be able to produce the same kind of work performance, right. right? And the person gets frustrated easily, can make it angry. Uh, there's a lot and everybody's different. Everybody's right. different. Can we back up a little bit and just talk about like, do we know as far as what, what is actually happening when, you know, what, what causes a stroke basically? We don't know. Sometimes they say obesity causes it. Um, sometimes they say, you know, genetics could cause it. 
But what's what's actually happening, right? So is high it, levels of cholesterol as well. So, but but basically, with all those things, my understanding is it's kind of like, you know, like your arteries kind of get clogged or whatever, and and Correct. there's insufficient blood flow, um, like the blood flow kind of gets cut off, right? Exactly. That's exactly what's going on. So the oxygen doesn't go through the brain, and then uh, the the stroke happens. Right. Yeah. Right. Jen, and then. The surrounding area of the stroke also start to die, so therefore that means the brain cells that are surrounding the stroke area uh, start to uh, not to receive oxygen. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, and that's yeah, that's probably resulting in in a lot of the kind of neuron loss and and brain damage, right? Exactly. Yeah. So as far as you know, obviously, like you kind of touched on it as far as you know, if a stroke, say, impacts, you know, a sp like a specific area of the brain, say the right frontal lobe, other areas of the brain, like your brain's actually very, um, you know, adaptable. Like, so, so like other areas can kind of take over, you know, the, the function, right? Like maybe not perfectly, but they can sort of try to compensate. Some, some. some. I mean, some people can actually become uh, handicapped. And they're not going to be able to walk again or even talk again. Um, so it, it's some, it all depends case by case. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What about as far as like, you know, neuroplasticity is something we talk a lot about just kind of currently in neuroscience. Um, as far as like how, you know, obviously when, when you have a kind of severe sort of like a, a brain injury like that, you know, the brain obviously is, is, it's going to take a lot, but, but is it possible, like, with the technology that we have, do you think currently that people are at least able to regain a, a certain level of function? Can your brain figure out how to, can those neurons kind of come back online and those brain, or, or is it just like those areas just kind of die off? Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, yeah. They die off? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Do you think... Do you, like, is there research, like, are we going to get to a point where we can figure out how to say, like, Ooh. you know, birth new neurons in those That's areas? That's interesting. Um, there are, there actually, there are research out there that, uh, that are trying to see if we can rebuild certain neurons, but, um, but it's not in here. It hasn't been done in human beings. It's been tested, uh, on, on mice and, um, but there is research out there. Uh, do I, futuristically speaking, I'm not sure if that, if, if we're gonna start making uh, new neurons, say someone is handicapped and then they're unable to walk and suddenly, you know, you're, we're injecting them and they're gonna start walking all of a sudden. I'm not sure, that's, that's a very, very distant, uh, question that may take many years right because it's like we we have the technology currently you know technology but you know both of us work with that that increases blood flow in the brain and carry you know carries more um you know oxygen to to areas but you know it, it i guess kind of depends as far as if those areas have been damaged so much that you know that oxygen isn't isn't really able to do anything right yeah yeah as far as i know yeah yeah interesting yeah. 
And then as far as like with with, with severe damage, uh, it's not it's not very reversible. There is a very very thin chance. Yeah, yeah, it's really sad. I mean, I think I think a lot about like you know neurodegenerative conditions. I mean, Alzheimer's is huge right now, and it's I think something that because we're living longer, you know, humans are living longer. We've modern medicine has has figured out how to you know sort of. Uh, deal with a lot of the other kind of right. you know problems that that result say in our you know 60s and 70s but I, I read something as far as like you know basically if if you don't die of heart disease you're gonna yeah. kind of die of Alzheimer's most likely sure, or at yeah. least die with with Alzheimer's yeah that's kind yeah, of a scary with, proposition right with those types of cases it's it we're at this point now, we're able to maintain it, but not necessarily heal it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, yeah, a lot we can of maintain it for many, many years, but uh, I mean, completely get rid of the disease. Yeah, we haven't gotten there yet. Right, right. Because I know, like the the medications you know used to treat Alzheimer's are very ineffective. You know, they're. They keep trying to come out with the magic pill that's right. gonna supposedly solve it, but you know, they, they yeah, can Yeah, same with like, Parkinson's disease. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And you know, it, it actually sort of uh it, it's kind of a good transition because I feel like, you know, with a lot of these things and just kind of brain health in general, it comes down to more so like prevention, right? Than like actually, you know, once you have one of these conditions, once you have a stroke, once you have Alzheimer's, it's really difficult to deal with, at least where we are at, you know, currently, right. currently speaking. But, but as far as living, you know, really healthy lifestyles, we know now with, you know, epigenetics and, and all the, the different things, we can actually, uh, you know, really decrease our odds, you know, of a lot of these things happening, right? Right, right. Working out eating healthy, those are definitely keys to at least kind of avoid those situations, especially with stroke. Mm-hmm. Is that more so like the, like kind of increasing blood flow, say with exercise? Right. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. And also I think with, with the diet, you know, I think that's something, you know, both of us have, uh, you know, common interest in like, as far as eating, I'm guessing an anti-inflammatory diet, is going to kind of prevent that sort of, um, I mean, basically like the, you know, my understanding is basically, you know, with any sort of brain inflammation or, or like say a stroke, you know, it's, it's basically the, those arteries or whatever are kind of getting clogged and inflamed or, right, right. you know, with a traumatic brain injury, that's, that's literally where, you know, there's a damage to the, you know, brain, like physical damage. And it's like, I mean, everyone can, can see if say, if you if you sprain your ankle and your ankle balloons you know up in size but you can't really see that inflammation oftentimes in the brain in the brain right yeah exactly yeah Um, yeah go ahead yeah like you said definitely the brain you cannot open up your brain and hey let me check out if i'm okay (laughs) if i'm going to be okay next year or two am i healthy enough do i is it possible that i may get a stroke by next year yeah you can't do that um so just basically uh following a good diet working out um even keeping the stress levels down the cortisol hormones can, can 
just what they say, uh, stress can kill. So when you feel when you feel like you're getting high levels of stress during your daily life, it's important to um, either get help from a psychotherapist, from a professional that can um, help you with uh, certain situations, situational stress in life, uh, because that can help you physiologically speaking as well. Mm -hmm. And how about how about in school? You know, with your with your research uh, for um, education in microbiology, what were the biggest takeaways from that as far as how our gut actually influences our brain function? There is a very very strong connection uh, of the gut to the brain. Uh, the gut is actually considered the second brain, uh, and Part of that is actually because the gut produces an estimation of 90 to 95 percent of serotonin. And serotonin is our happy hormone. So that's, that's the key element here to take away when it comes to gut-brain connection. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I'm going to go towards the, uh, the nutrition part of it. When you have a healthy diet, whatever you're putting in uh, really does matter because when you're having a healthy diet instead of just, you know, junk food, um, you know, the, the gut is happy, therefore the brain is happy. Right. Yeah. And I don't know if you've seen there, there's some studies as far as actually like giving, I think it was, yeah, it actually was human subjects giving them, you know, certain probiotic species and actually say uh for one of them i think you know it substantially decreased anxiety levels yes so we we really know Absolutely. that you know the, the the composition of your gut all of those different microbes really yeah. does impact brain function yeah yeah uh, healthy food can definitely change your your mood mm -hmm. so when you're eating healthy uh and uh, you're you're keeping up with with the good diet it does play an impact. Right. With the, so, yeah. So I feel like for, you know, for most people, it's like in this day and age, you know, we're, we're very well aware of like, you know, kind of the damage of, of junk food. You know, we know McDonald's isn't good for you, but I feel like we're more divided than ever as far as like what actually, you know, everyone has a, you know, and, and people right. get it. You're allowed to cheat day, but not, don't make it yeah. 10 days a week. <laughs> well, yeah, sure. But, but more so like, cause everyone now has, you know, some, some diet philosophy that they subscribe to. It's like, you know, the vegans and the, the vegetarians and paleo and keto. Yeah, and it's like, confusing. Yeah, it's confusion. <laughs> yeah. But like, do you think that, that, one, uh, say one nutritional philosophy over another really has better research or is it, is it more individualized based on, you know, kind of what works for you? I don't, I'm not sure. Well, I, I know Mediterranean, uh, diet is known to be very healthy with the, the olive oil and, you know, um, that's the fish and all of that with the omega-3s and all of that. Besides that, I mean, the, the, all kinds of diets uh, get confusing to me. I'm just like, which one is which? <laughs> yeah. I think, yeah, I think, like, to all of us, yeah, it's like, yeah. and everyone, 
there's all these supposed you yeah. know, nutrition experts. Every month there is something new. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, how I think of it, 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 there's commonalities in a lot of this where it's like pretty much everyone agrees veggies are good for you, you know? There's not many people who are saying, you know, don't eat veggies. Um, and fish. And fish, yeah, that's that's another big one. Yeah, like the omega-3s you mentioned, uh, they, they really cut down on, on overall inflammation, which in turn, brain inflammation, right? Yeah, yeah. And is that Except something... For too much fish, I mean, too, I'm talking about excessive seafood um, could lead to mercury, so you gotta... Things have to be in moderation. Right, right. And how do you know, like specifically, the the omega threes? What uh, what are they doing that that benefits our, our health or brain function? Well, they the, they're nutrients, just like the protein is a nutrient to the brain. So they they give energy for for brain processes. So um, it's important. That's how that's how we work. Right. Right. What do you what do you think about as far as like, you know, fat and the brain? I think that's like a really it, it's kind of an emerging topic that it, more and more people are talking about, like high fat diet, like high good fat diets actually being really beneficial. And you mentioned like the olive oil. Um, that's the know, good fat. Yeah, it's a good diet. <laughs> well, like avocados, coconut oil, you know, almond fat. butter. Yeah, there's like lots of uh, good fats and and we know that the brain is actually primarily fat. Mm-hmm. So it, it kind of like makes French sense. fries, too much French fries. <laughs> Probably not good. <laughs> no. Yeah, I, I feel like that's where a lot of people like, you know, like think, oh, yeah, like, you know, when they think of fat, they think of like fast food. And that's why I right. think a lot of like high fat diets are like demonized. But but if we're talking like high good fat, eating lots of avocados and coconut, I think that is actually really good for Coking the Coking with olive oil, uh, stuff like that for sure, yeah. Yeah. Uh, th- those are the good fats. Those are the ones you want to go towards. Right. I know yeah. olive oil in particular, I'd, I'd read something about that actually, it actually breaks up like the, there's certain chemicals in olive oil that actually break up the amyloid beta plaques that form in Alzheimer's disease. Yeah. Yeah, that's really? why Mediterranean uh, diets are good. They're uh-huh. known to be very, very um, good diets. Right. What? So what else are they? They're eating lots of olive oil, lots of chickpeas, veggies, fish, fish, chickpeas. Um, drinking a else? lot of wine too, Trent. right? Huh? They're drinking oh. a lot of wine too, right? No, not no, not not necessarily. No. <laughs> Well, that that's one that's like <laughs> I feel like you know ever since that uh, the stuff came out about like resveratrol, you know, in wine like being good for you, people um, like are like oh like wine's good, but yeah, but we, we have know to, it's we like, have to be careful with those statements because the problem is uh, there's always a conflicting research too when it comes to stuff like that. It's like they say oh one glass of wine is is good for you to fall asleep. But then the problem is once the, the the person or the brain gets adapted to that one glass of wine, it may lead to two, to three, you know, that you build such a high tolerance that six months down the line, you, you don't need just one glass. You may need three to fall asleep. And um, so we have to be careful with those things. Someone who has an addiction uh, in alcohol, 
that that pattern, you know, that daily pattern is not necessarily good for them because they're, they have addictive behaviors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I'm with you there as far as what, what I was going to say as far as like the the resveratrol like supposedly being this really, I mean, it actually is a really good compound that can, put, you know, it, it extends lifespan in like rodents and mice. I don't think we know in humans yet, but I think like it got misinterpreted like, you know, by, right. by like where media media outlets are saying, oh, wine has resveratrol, therefore wine's Have good. one glass every night to fall asleep, but you're patterning yourself to become dependent on that one glass of wine. Right. And also the, the resveratrol I was seeing, it's like you would need to drink like basically the, the amount of wine that would kill you in a day to actually get the, the, the proper doses of resveratrol that would actually, you know, be beneficial for your health. So it's not, it's something that's actually kind of another interesting topic as far as how like a lot of, a lot of times, like there's a lot of misinterpretation, I think, spread by, by media outlets, um, who are kind of like improperly reporting the actual science and research. Um, I think it's really cool nowadays where, you know, researchers are like, I think more approachable than ever. Say like, you know, they have Twitter right. and Instagram, so you could actually. They have now they're, they're writing, They have podcasts <laughs> now. Now they're writing books, so it's like, I feel like we're we're getting better at actually getting the the direct information from the source. Yeah. Do you, That's why do you it's always that? important to read the, the, the thin lines at the bottom, you know, because it's going to give you the breakdown. <laughs> but, but see, no one does that. I, I was talking in a, in a previous podcast with my buddy Michael, and he's a, he's a, a reporter uh, for the student newspaper at Oregon and interns at the Wall Street Journal. And, you know, we were talking as far as, you know, how, um, you know, it's really problematic that, like, most people, like, just see you know, say the headline, but don't actually read the article. Right. We're getting, we're getting like bombarded by so much information, say on, you know, on just scrolling through your Twitter feed. So a lot of people like, you know, there's all these clickbait headlines, but people aren't actually like reading the article. Yeah. Do you I see that? Like, like, do you see that in your line of work? Like, do you see like, say patients come in who are very misinformed because of that? Absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. People, like you said, people just are so quick uh, to just look at the summary or the abstract, and then they don't get it. They don't go into the details of, you know, what 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 happened with the research, how uh, how how did the conclusion come about, and um, because we don't have time, unfortunately, a lot a lot of people these days don't don't have time to sit. And read thoroughly through a journal. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, People so, working nine to fives right. and raising kids, like yeah, they right. they're not gonna have time right. to sit down and scroll. I mean, even people who do have time to do that, there's limitless. You could spend your whole life reading research yeah. papers. Yeah. 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 Uh, so what? Which ends up hurting the public because that one person who read that non-detailed title is gonna spread the word and post it on Facebook or post it on a social media um, and the other person is just gonna read that one sentence and by the time it gets to the 50th person you know that's, 
<laughs> it's a whole nother research. Yeah, it's like the the game telephone, right? You know, where you're like whispering something yeah. into someone's ear, and it by the time it gets around the circle, it's a completely different word. Yeah. I think, it, yeah, a similar thing happens. Unfortunate, yeah. Yeah. Do you see like a like kind of a solution to that, or I mean, Ooh, uh, let's see. I mean, like I like potentially like the. Okay, so for instance, like I'm I'm reading this book right now. Uh, it's called like Longevity, um, the the science of why aging is. Let me pull up the actual title so I don't. Oh wait, no, it's lifespan. Why we age and why we don't have to, and it's by a, a doctor David Sinclair. And this is he's a Harvard professor. He's taught at Harvard for like the past thirty years, and he's he he talked like in the in the introduction of the book. Like, cause this book is like written for the public, you know, it's like talking about all this like complicated research where he's kind of trying to break it down into understandable information that actually is going to benefit the public. But he was talking about how like, there's not a lot of incentive for like research, like people who are deeply in the research, like academia, they're getting the majority of their money by doing studies and writing, say, you know, journal articles and, you know, chapters of a journal, like they're not, that's, that's kind of my, my idea is like, if we can get the information, if, if more researchers actually speak to the public directly. Right. Or maybe social media should hire researchers to kind of like break it down to the most relevant details and put it in one or two paragraphs um, that is accurate instead yeah. of that. So maybe maybe that's that's the future. Um, getting in, get it, you know, hiring more researchers within the social media environment and and having them read the studies accurately and then understanding the studies the way they should uh, be understood and. Um, having them summarize it i think that's that yeah that's that's a really interesting idea that i think would be really beneficial but i feel like and this is something i also talked to michael about about like how you know when we're when say we're going through our, our twitter feed or instagram it's all curated you know based off our followers so for instance you know you would still need to say follow those people to get that accurate research. Like people could still go follow Joe Schmo, who's, you know, talking about, you know, some, some, you know, br like the bro science or whatever that isn't actually real. So it's like, all you know, I think it's just another aspect of actually being able to, you know, get, get that, you know, the accurate research into the right hands. Mm -hmm. I think. Yeah. Maybe we'll figure out a, a way around that. I don't know. One day. One day. <laughs> One day. <laughs> well, listen. I wanna I wanna sort of transition here um, to kind of just another another topic. I'm I'm really curious because you've you know ha you've done lots of degree programs, lots of higher education, um, lots of certifications, and I'm curious like how like what's your what's your sort of thought process as far as like thinking is this going to like like cuz obviously it's going to take a lot of time it's going to take a lot of money how do you how do you think about like whether it's actually going to be worth it 
Like, is that what, what what's your thinking there? About what about education? Well, well, yeah, is you know whether whether I mean you know education costs so much nowadays where it's like, is it worth? actually doing like you know is it actually going to get me oh like what i did with the dual education well yeah i mean just with like all your all your degrees uh, you know or with any certifications you've committed money you've committed time to to pursue these things i'm assuming in hopes that it's gonna you know get you right. the knowledge or, or certifications to advance in your career yeah um learning is continuous so um, after you graduate after people go through grad school whatever that, that never the learning part of it never stops you still have to go to conferences like we were just saying medicine is so gets so advanced by the monthly or sometimes by the daily um, that we need to keep up with the and that's uh, Picking the right grad school or picking more certifications or more um, specific education, that's more based on opinions. To me, I chose that path because I needed uh, a dual education to understand uh, the body and mind. Um, and in order for me to, to comprehend all of that, and even when I do continue in education, I can understand what they're talking about because um, with uh, psychology and uh, hardcore physical sciences, like I was saying, they, they're very much intertwined. One leads to, to another and vice versa. So I can't sit in a conference uh, and really understand neuroscience without having a background of neuroscience or sitting in a psychology conference without really understanding the, the psychology theories. So, but it is a personal choice. Uh, it did take me a long time. Um, however, it was worth it for me. Mm -hmm. And it, it seems like, like for what you wanted to do, there was a very specific, well, maybe not specific, but you did need certain degrees, certain certifications. Yeah. Um, I just think about it like nowadays, like I think a lot of people are like, you know, getting dissuaded from like pursuing, you know, certain, uh, you know, aspects of higher, you know, going into uh, grad programs just because of the cost. Right. I, I get thinking like, is that going to like lead to a societal change? Like, are there going to be less doctors and lawyers, like people who are, who, who you know, people like don't want to spend all of this money and then potentially have student debt that they're never going to be able to pay off? Well, in any field, um, when you specialize, obviously, uh, it's going to cost more time and money. So if, if you're capable in doing it and you really want to specialize, then it's a good route um, because it, it's going to open doors because you're, you're very, you know, and it has to be your passion. You can't follow something without being passionate about it because it's just, um, it's going to come a time in your life where you're going to be bored because you're not so passionate. So passion goes a long way. I think I think it actually to me personally it starts with passion and then education will grow. 
I'm absolutely with you on that one. I, there was actually a, another podcast I did with uh, my buddy Carl, who's a med student right now. And he, we talked a lot about, you know, passion as far as like, that's what, you know, he's really inspired to do this stuff and, you know, make a positive difference in the world, not because his family is telling him to do so or right. because he thinks he's going to get a lot of money as a right. doctor. Like those right. things might happen and that's, that's cool. Like, you right. know, but he's really driven by this, this burning desire to make a positive difference. Right. Is it, you feel kind of the same yeah. like with your own? Yeah. Definitely started with a passion and then it grew into interest and then the education came next. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I, I don't know if you've experienced this, like in your classes, um, you know, cause like Carl was saying how in some of his, you know, med school classes, it's like, you know, he can, he can easily spot the people who are there, you know, because their parents wanted them to become a doctor. Like, like people like, yeah. just, like, it's like, because you have to commit so, so many hours, so much hard work to doing something like, you know, becoming a doctor. It, I think it's nearly impossible, at least from his perspective, I think, you know, in, to actually do all of that when you're not driven by your right. own desire to do exactly. it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You're did, not. Did you notice that in people like in classes you took? People yeah. who like were there for the you, wrong reason? Yeah. Some, yeah. Definitely. Uh, because even if the person is capable into putting themselves through med school or grad school or any kind of school that needs a higher education, um, and they're not passionate about it, it's going to get a point where they're going to dislike it. And then what? Right. You know, it's so yeah, definitely passion goes a long way. Absolutely. And you become more creative in your career as well. Yeah. So I want to kind of wrap up with, with sort of like, you know, where, where do you see, you know, the kind of the future of, of, you know, neurology and psychology. It, it seems like we're making such fast progress as far as like, you know, we kind of, you kind of talked about a little as far as just new research developments, you know, constantly. Like, what do you, uh, do you see any like big changes that are, you know, coming say in the, in the near future as far as those different fields go or, or the way we say treat patients with, with different psychiatric or, or neurological, neurological conditions? It's interesting because I think, um, we've been, uh, we're starting to go into a lot of the, the people are starting to go towards the natural aspect of it instead of you know psychiatric uh medicine uh, i've been not i'm not talking about the severe cases that need uh, psychiatric medicine but um yeah people are more in tune with uh with more natural uh treatments uh, with you know uh, meditation um you know, neuromodulation, things like that. I could see that growing more and more as, as we're moving forward. Absolutely. Yeah, I think there, you're right. There is, I think, a desire amongst most people to, to sort of do things that, you know, like not putting external chemicals in their mm -hmm. body and, and get sort of, yeah. you know, you know, kind of take a, a more natural approach. Right. And not that 
some people, you know, don't need them or many people don't need them. I'm not saying that I'm just saying, you know, when it's something that it's mild, uh, you know, just a little, you know, stress levels or mild depression. I think people are more in tune now into figuring out how can they decrease those feelings or those symptoms with more natural um, treatments. Right. I think like what's cool and, and maybe what's in part sort of the, uh, contributing to those movements growing is that they've actually been finding it to be effective. Like it's, you know, I think for a while it was like, you know, the only people that meditated were like hippies, you know, it was very like <laughs> counter counterculture. But now there's like meditation classes being taught at Google and like, you know, the biggest Fortune 500 Silicon Valley companies because they know it works. They know it's going to improve workers, you know, efficiency and, and get. Yeah. And motivation and motivation. And all that. Yeah. In addition. Productivity. To, yeah. Yeah. Also, I think just their morale, you know, happier workers, I think, are going to, you know, yeah. produce better work. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, Layla, thank you. Uh, thank you so much for coming You're on welcome. the show today. Yeah. You're welcome. All right. Well, I really enjoyed that discussion. Same. Same here right. as well. All right. Is there anything as far as uh, anything you want to plug? Any if people like wanted well, I don't know if you, if you want people to get in touch with you or not, but <laughs> well, you can if, put that under your um, your podcast. You can title it. You can put my. You can add my LinkedIn if you want. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. Absolutely. And then, as far as if people want um, to connect with the podcast, we're Roscoe's Wetsuit Podcast on Instagram. Also, we are on Apple Podcasts, Spotify. If you want to just listen to the audio version, but we are also on YouTube. Roscoe's Wetsuit is the uh, YouTube username. So go ahead, like, and subscribe. You know what to do. All right. All right. Bye, Toby. Bye, Lila. <laughs> See you.